Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Jacob Avila and I'm joined by the one and only Michael Pratz. Mike, how are you, buddy? Doing great, J.A., another day in paradise. Now, as you know, we like to start off with cases, get in the mode, get in the mindset of learning about ultrasound. And this was a fascinating case series titled A Simple Algorithm for Differential Diagnosis in Hemodynamic Shock based on the LVOT VTI, which is the left ventricular outflow track velocity time integral. Interesting thing for those of you that are interested in shock, maybe doing a little more advanced stuff to help you nuance your therapies and treatments of these sick patients. And what these authors did was they came up with like, it's both complex and simple at the same time. The things that you're doing on ultrasound are a little bit require some advanced skills, but they're trying to make it as simple and algorithmic as possible so that you evaluate these things and it helps you treat the patient. So basically they broke it down into get the preload, figure out the LV systolic function, figure out the afterload using some of the data from the LVOT VTI, and then figure out the venous congestion, also looking at the LV line in the lungs, IVC, and some of the other things that we see have been described as part of the VEXUS exam. And they're trying to put all this together. They go through a number of patients that are in shock using this algorithm and show how it can actually help them make decisions in real time. It's pretty cool. Check out that article. It'll be linked in the notes as usual. So Jacob, what's our main event today? So our main event is my favorite procedure, and that is anything vascular access. This article is entitled Ultrasound Guided Versus Landmark Method for Subclavian Vein Catheterization in an Academic Emergency Department. And it was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2022. And shout out to my peeps at UCSD. It's kind of cool to, to see some names there that I that I recognize or here in San Diego. They're like about an hour from my house, not super close, but we still hang out. It's great. And in this article, they basically are talking about something that I care about, and that is ultrasound versus not ultrasound for subclavian vein catheterizations. Specifically, this is infraclavicular subclavian vein catheterization. A little quick thing, Mike, are we doing a subclavian vein catheterization or are we doing an axillary vein cannulation? And then my second question is, does it even matter that I'm asking that question? Well, I'm going to go with your second question first. And I think, honestly, it probably doesn't matter that much. I I didn't know if you were trying to trick me, so I kind of left it a little bit open. With the first question, I think most of the time we are hitting the axillary vein because it's really hard to actually visualize the true subclavian if you are using your ultrasound probe. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Agreed, agreed. Now, we have good data for internal jugular vein cannulation using ultrasound and how it helps. We have pretty decent data with a femoral vein, but the subclavian vein is, we have data, it's just not as good as the IJ, it's not as good as the femoral. And I used to do these like before fellowship, I actually loved doing these blind. And then in fellowship, I would start to look and realize that, oh my gosh, the artery is right next to it. Sometimes like the subclavian vein itself or the axillary vein is like super duper compressed. Like you can't even see it even with gentle pressure. The lung is like a centimeter. It's like really close to exactly like the back wall of that vein. It's just all a very tight space and all a bit dangerous. And when I started looking, I was like, oh my gosh, like I should be doing all these with ultrasound. And since then I've done them all with ultrasound. And anecdotally, it seems a lot easier. It seems like I have more success. I have 
a better idea of what's going on. And this, I would argue, this article kind of shows that or reiterates that, agrees with me, basically. Exactly. So my take is the same as yours. Like, it seems that intuitively makes sense. Use ultrasound, probably a little bit safer. But traditionally, that's just not what people have done. So this article is asking the question, does ultrasound guidance lead to more success with your subclavian or axillary vein catheterization? And the interesting thing is there has been studies on this before. What they want to do was first look at an emergency department population and secondly, randomize to one of these two options, either ultrasound guidance or landmark based. And their population was emergency department patients that required vasoactive medications, resuscitation, basically any any reason why you would want to put in a central line. So they had to require a central line and then they excluded things that made sense, whether they their INR was high, platelets were too low, they were getting CPR, they were pediatric, pregnancy, incarcerated, non-English speaking, pretty typical exclusion criteria as well. Now, interestingly to note, this population was from 2004 to 2009. So this is a while ago. That is a while ago. Now, my math isn't good, but that seems like it was over a decade ago. Yeah, I think you're, what were you doing, Jacob, in April of 2004? I'm just curious. So I was a sophomore in college? No, no, I started, was I starting med school? This is hard, dude. Yeah, I think I was a sophomore in college. Good for you. Those are the good old days. So here's how things went down. Patients would go to the ED. They would meet the inclusion criteria. They were included in the study. They were randomized to either get ultrasound guided or landmark guided subclavian central lines. Then their primary outcomes, I put in quotes because, you know, we like to say that there should just be one primary outcome, but here they they state that there's four primary outcomes. Overall success was number one, number of attempts, complications, and time to obtain the line. Let me go into a few important details. The success, they defined in an interesting way. So you had basically three attempts to still get a success. And every time you redirected the needle or punctured the skin again, that was an attempt. After three times, then the attending physician would try. But if you passed three times, didn't count as success. So it's a little tricky how they did that. And then for complications, they're mainly looking at hemothorax, pneumothorax, arterial puncture. Time was measured skin puncture to subclavian puncture. Didn't include setting up the ultrasound or anything like that. And then after you got your line, all the participants got a chest x-ray to confirm the placement. All right, special treat. Cray Bolger shows up here too. So Cray, why don't you actually tell us about who did the ultrasounds in this study and a little bit about this scan in general. In this study, both residents and attendings did the ultrasounds and they separated them out, which I think is really helpful for our common practice, especially if you're at a teaching facility. Are you comfortable with your resident doing this? Or I think what's even more uncommon is, are we comfortable with our attendings doing this who maybe are less facile with the ultrasound to use it on a less regular basis? So they got a 30 minute tutorial on how to do an ultrasound guided line and set up the machine in what I would describe as like the optimal way where it's away from you. So your eyes are kind of have the needle and the ultrasound machine in a common line of sight. Then they found the axillary vein and artery and worked their way medial, found the subclavian vein and all of this 
was in short axis. And then they did what we describe as like a leapfrog technique to follow their needle into the vessel, meaning that you're always keeping your probe ahead of your needle tip, essentially, so that you're not potentially looking at the mid shaft and miss assessing that that was the tip of the needle. Some tips they pointed out for their providers is making sure you know where the lung is and don't go there. Generally speaking, I think, you know, knowing where the vein is relative to the clavicle, using the patient motion to bring the vein out from underneath the clavicle a little bit, whether it's a slight shoulder shrug or a slight rotation of the arm can help pull that vein out from directly underneath the clavicle, which can make it a little bit more challenging to access. And remember, because most of these great vessels are immediately adjacent to an artery, in this case, the subclavian artery, they can appear pulsatile. So don't use pulsatility in flow or on the ultrasound as an ultimate confirmation of artery versus vein. Look at your waveforms, look at your compressibility. And remember, your ribs can be your friends. So in any procedure where you're accessing the thorax and you're trying not to access the pleural space, use your you can use your ribs as like a backstop to keep you from going through because you will get an immediate tactile feedback when you've hit a rib compared to the pleura where you may not get that and may have a unintended complication. Exactly. All right, Jacob, run us through the results. What did this turn out? So with the results that showed kind of what I see in my clinical practice, which is that the ultrasound does increase the success. So when you look at their overall success, their ultrasound guided success rate was 79.5%, whereas their landmark success was 58.5%. So that's pretty good. Now with these numbers, I'm a little sad about the 80% success rate, but I think if you're including multiple types of providers, I think that actually probably adds up. Now, the one thing that was kind of interesting to me was the amount of time that it took to get from the skin puncture to the actual puncture of the vein itself. Now, Mike, you kind of mentioned it didn't include the setup time, which that's definitely a thing that you got to think about, right? Is it probably takes a solid, you know, two-ish minutes if you're going fast to make sure the ultrasound machine is in the right spot, making sure that you put your probe cover on there and everything. But nonetheless, they found that when they were successful, and I think that's actually kind of what's important, the ultrasound guided approach had a mean time of 85 seconds, whereas a landmark was 35 seconds. So a pretty big difference there of about 50 seconds, five zero seconds. Now, if you're looking at absolute numbers, it's kind of like a big jump, but one minute extra time to do something that is more likely to be successful in the in the first place is not like a big deal. Like one minute is not that big of a deal to make sure that you actually get it, but it is a, a fairly big difference here. Anything else that stuck out to you guys on the findings that they had? So one thing I found interesting was when you flip-flopped the groups. So if you started with ultrasound and converted to landmark, or if you started with landmark and converted to ultrasound, both those conversions each had one failure rate and it was in a supra morbidly obese patient. So I think that is something to consider as patient selection. But there were more failures when they converted from ultrasound to landmark versus landmark to ultrasound. And I think that is important for those who maybe feel comfortable starting with Landmark is that maybe one attempt, but if you're not getting it, then consider converting to ultrasound because you're going to have a higher success rate than if you flip the other way. You're less likely to get it. If you can't get it with the ultrasound, you're much less likely to get it with blind Landmark approach. That makes sense to me. Now, going back to our four primary outcomes, I had some trouble actually finding a lot of the data. I don't think they included everything that they wanted to in this manuscript. They did say that there was no difference 
difference in complications, but there wasn't actually a table or any hard data to tell us how many complications. And they also didn't tell us the number of attempts between the two groups. Like, did it take more pokes when you were using the landmark guidance? We don't know. That is mysteriously absent from the paper. Overall, though, I liked that this was randomized, controlled. They used the right groups that were interested in comparing important outcomes, including time and success and complications. So I thought overall this is helpful in adding to where we are in the literature. What do you guys think? Any other limitations or application of this data? One thing that they do mention is it it would be interesting to see differences now. So this was 15 years ago, right? Like, what would it be like now where we have residents who presumably are much more facile with ultrasound guidance and much less facile with landmark guidance. And we also have the tech has dramatically changed in the past 15 years with regards to how good the image quality can be and, you know, frequencies and all that stuff, how, you know, deep, maybe that morbidly obese patient that, you know, they struggled with on here, like maybe that wouldn't have been an issue these days. Maybe ultrasound would even show to be more beneficial in a morbidly obese person. Who knows? So that's one thing that I would love to see is this data, but now. Totally agree with with you, I think it's more commonplace that we're doing, even like the more old school practitioners, it's more commonplace that this is the standard of care too. And so I think everybody's comfort with needle guidance has increased dramatically, even in the last five to 10 years, let alone 15, which has a lot to do with this, right? Like if you can't find and follow your needle, it doesn't matter what your target is. And I think that's the dexterity component of this is huge with any ultrasound guided procedure. And that comes with practice. And you only practice if you're told you have to. At least that's how it works with my kids in sports. (laughs) So I I think that that's, you know, like now that it's become the standard and it's not like, well, you can use ultrasound if you want to, if you're one of those people, it's like you should be using ultrasound play, aren't you? I think that culture flip probably will change a lot of the data we see on ultrasound guided procedures. Now, one thing I wanted to add in, it's just a little thing, but it could be significant. I tried to look at the fragility index. For those of you that haven't heard of this, this is basically saying how many patients would have to switch outcomes in order for the difference between these groups to no longer be significant. And because this is only 85 patients and there wasn't huge differences, I wanted to see, you know, how close was this? Well, when I put their little two by two table into a fragility index calculator, it actually said the fragility index was zero, which means that the results are not significant currently. So I don't know exactly how they calculated everything in the manuscript. It's not exceptionally transparent about that. But it is possible that maybe these results were not as significant as they made them out to be. Guys, I'll end with this question. Should we be doing all of our subclavian lines with ultrasound guidance and should we teach them all that way? I mean, yes, there's there's never a situation where it's always the same thing, right? I mean, there's always going to be times where I might actually do a landmark based subclavian, right? And then when I'm teaching ultrasound guided subclavians, I usually mention, hey, if you were doing a landmark, here's how you would do it. But you shouldn't necessarily like learn an inferior way of doing something just because historically it's the way that we did things before. But being aware of it's fine. I do all of these if I can help it with ultrasound guidance. I 100% agree to an extent. I think <laughs> that's like that, 60% what, of the time. 80, 85%? Like how much, how much? I agree. You should never on? do anything in an inferior way. And that that patient in front of you deserves the best care possible. 100% agree. 
which for procedures, ultrasound guidance is typically that upper level echelon standard of care. However, I think in a teaching environment, our residents need to be comfortable with landmark techniques for both femoral and subclavian lines because there will be situations where that isn't available and that patient in front of you needs that line. And if you don't have a clue how to do it, I worry. Now, that being said, I don't know how comfortable as an attending I want like them just jabbing around either. But I do think it's really important to preserve that skill because I do think that this is not ubiquitous, that this is not every, like, you know, if you're in the field, if you're in a third world country, if you're even in a rural portion of the United States, like you may not have a machine or you're in a cardiac arrest and somebody else is using that machine for something else, right? I think that that we cannot become overly reliant on ultrasound. And I know that's like blasphemy in this crew, but I think we do have to preserve some of those landmark-based skills until this becomes in everybody's pocket in every patient care situation. Because if we don't have them, they will fatigue. And if they fatigue, our patients will suffer. I kind of agree with Cray on this one. I want our trainees to be able to do it by landmark. And then once they have that skill, then I'll tell them, use ultrasound every time you can. But, you know, I think we might run out of subclavian lines to to do both. So sometimes you got to make those hard decisions. Well, let me summarize this article. This is a randomized comparison of 85 patients in the emergency department who required a central line. They compared traditional landmark guidance to dynamic ultrasound guidance. Their main findings were about 80% success in the ultrasound group compared to 60% success in the landmark group. The ultrasound group took about one minute longer, no difference in complications. Our take-home points for this article, number one, ultrasound guidance can increase success of the subclavian vein cannulation after proper training in this technique. Number two, for this small of a population, there was likely too low of an incidence and complications to really discern a difference between these groups. And lastly, we still need more data establishing the superiority of this method, but this article definitely adds to the evidence supporting this practice. Well, thank you to the authors for performing this study. Really cool stuff. And thank you listeners for tuning in yet again. Remember, you can always go to ultrasoundgel.org to find out more, check out more articles. And until then, we will talk to you later. More pressure, more gel, more pressure, more gel, more ultrasound gel podcast. It's like when I say you're my best friend, but I actually have 10 best friends.